Peace be with you. Peace be with y'all, I should say. Right, if you want to head back to your seats and open up in your Bibles to Mark 6, we're going to be looking at Mark 6, verses 45 through 52, as we continue our sermon series sequentially, Mark walking through the gospel according to Mark. We're in Mark 6, 45. To 52. Now, um, if this is your first time here, if you're a guest with us, take a moment, please, and, and fill out a Connect card. Those can be found in the, the shelf of the pew in front of you, and that just lets us know who you are, that you are here. There's a, a space for prayer requests in there. If you take a moment and fill out that so we know how we can be praying for you this week, it would be an honor, and joy, uh, an honor and a joy to be able to do that. Uh, take a moment, fill that out, and then when uh, you leave service or whatever, you can drop it. There's a wooden box on the table with the golden tablecloth in the back there on your way out of the door. You can just drop it in that wooden box, and we'll make sure that that gets into the right hands. Now, boys and girls, it's Family Sunday, and uh, as I often do on Family Sunday, I have books. And we are also doing a, a uh, Q&A after service. So I'm going to invite you up front after service, and I'm going to sit down with you, and we're just going to uh, talk through any of the questions you might have, and and uh, if you uh, take notes during the service in your um, Truth 78 notebooks that we have for you, uh, jot down some questions uh, in there if you have any, and, and we'll make sure to address those after the service. Uh, I have eight books. I have uh, four copies of the Radical Book for Kids, which is a wonderful book. You're going to really enjoy that, and four copies of The Storm That Stopped. So, we're going to give away those books after service. Make sure you come see me and talk with me after the service, and we'll, we'll address any questions you might have. For now, let's take a moment and pray and ask the Lord for his help as we dig into his word. Father, we, we give you thanks for your word, for its clarity, its sufficiency, its authority, its, its truthfulness. And we pray that we would receive it as what it is this morning as the very Word of God. Would you help us to believe what it says, to trust what it promises, to obey what it commands. Help us to be hearers and faithful doers of your Word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were to walk down Broad Street in Oxford in England, you might just pass right by a location that I want to say is, is bulging with significance. It looks as if a, a pothole is forming in the middle of the street, but as you would walk up to it, you'd see a brick making a cross, a, a pattern of a cross down underneath the asphalt. And it almost looks as if the asphalt is, is retreating to unveil it. And what that little pothole is commemorating is the site of the Oxford Martyrs. Now, there were three Oxford Martyrs, but two of them were killed there in the same event, one event on October 16th, 1555. They were pastors, and their names were Hugh Latimer and Bishop Ridley. Hugh Latimer and Bishop Ridley, boys and girls, were men who believed and confessed and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at that time in England, 
that could get you in trouble. And it did. It got them in trouble. They were arrested about a year and a half earlier, and they spent that time in prison. And while they were there, they were condemned to death by being burned at the stake. They were given a chance to recant, but they refused and continued to confess the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when the day of October 16, 1555 came, they were led to that spot. They were tied to a stake. They had bags of gunpowder tied around their necks, and they were burnt to a cinder. John Fox records the famous words of Hugh Latimer to Nicholas Ridley right before the fire was lit. He said, be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. Literally, be joyful, be comforted, and have courage. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. Now, it's worth asking, how on earth could they have faced an execution like that with such steel in their spines and joy in their hearts? What led them to, to take heart? What inspired such comfort and courage in the face of death? And not just in the face of death, but in the face of such a horrid death, such a painful death, such an excruciating death. Why such comfort and courage? And it's not just them, of course. I could stand up here all day and, and recount to you stories of men and women over the last 2,000 years who have, in the face of death, exhibited such comfort and courage. Throughout this day, throughout history and to this day, there have been Christians who have faced horrendous suffering, terrible circumstances, pain, suffering, and even death, and yet they've done so with such resilience and comfort and courage. Why? We come to the next portion of our text in Mark's gospel, and we're on the heels of what we saw last week, the the miraculous multiplication of bread and fish, Jesus feeding the 5,000. And we come to this familiar scene here. It's familiar because it's a boat scene on the Sea of Galilee, which is really more of what we would call a lake. And and we've already been here. This is familiar, isn't it? We saw Jesus calm the storm in the same scene not too long ago. And when we were here before, we learned a great deal about fear of circumstances and about how such fears can be outweighed by the fear of and faith in Jesus. And that's probably something we need to consider and look at again and again and again. And I won't simply rehash that sermon. You can go back and listen to it. But there, there are particular lessons for here, uh, for here for us as well. And so we're going to jump in to Mark 6, 45 to 52 to see what the Lord Jesus has for us this morning in his word. If you want to stand with me, For the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen with reverence, let's listen with joy to the words of our Savior, as Mark wrote it, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart. 
it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Look with me at the communion Jesus had with his Father, the comfort of Jesus' person and presence, and the caution of the disciples' response to him. First, the communion that Jesus had with the Father. Verses 45 to 46 say, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And remember, we're on the heels of the the Jesus feeding the 5,000 men plus women and children. And it's beginning to get late. And so Jesus here makes his disciples get into the boat while he dismisses this sizable crowd. And it's, it's interesting, the word translated as made here, he made his disciples get into the boat. It's a strong word. It literally means that he, he strongly commanded them and, and compelled them to get into the boat. And it almost seems as if maybe they didn't want to, but he compelled them to get into the boat. Now, there are multiple reasons for that, undoubtedly. But one reason that he compelled them to get in the boat is so that he could simply have time alone to pray. That's what he does here. And this is not the first time that we've seen Jesus retreat to places of solitude so that he might pray and simply be alone with his Father. And it's interesting that Mark is continually just kind of peppering his his gospel with little examples of this, isn't it? It's almost as if he's trying to show us something about discipleship and following Jesus and what that means for the practice of prayer. And I remember vividly when I was a, a young man, I, um, I grew up in a pastor's home, and uh, our family lived just a, a couple houses down from the church's building where our dad's study and, and office was. And, and often, if we couldn't find anything to do, we'd just kind of make our way down there and practice guitar or drums and just annoy him. Um, but I, I remember this one particular occasion. I had gone down to the building, and I went directly to my dad's study And the door was closed and locked. It wasn't usually closed or locked. Normally it was open and we'd just waltz right in and distract him without a care. But his door was closed and locked and and so I knocked. There was no answer so I knocked some more and there was no answer and I knocked some more confused. I, I knew he was there so I continued to knock not getting the hint. And eventually my dad opened the door and when I saw his face I I knew precisely what he had been doing because I had seen that face before, that look on his face before, and when I saw it, I, I knew I had interrupted a holy moment. His, his eyes and face were red and puffy, and I knew that he had been on his knees with this face in, his, in the seat of his couch on his study, and that he'd been praying and crying out to God on behalf of his little flock. And now to this day, Part of the picture that I have in my mind for what it means to be a godly father and husband and pastor looks something like that. My mind often harkens back to that moment and I think about my father's praying and I try to emulate what I saw him doing all those years ago. 
Wasn't that what Mark is trying to do for Christ's followers here in his gospel? Isn't he showing us something of the, the faithful praying of Jesus so that we would follow in his footsteps to be people of prayer? Isn't he showing us that a life of discipleship and following Jesus and being an apprentice to Jesus means that we follow him into his faithful practice of prayer? And I don't want to skip over this with you, boys and girls. I don't want to just assume that you know this. That an essential part of following Jesus means that you're someone who prays. Some of you are now getting to, to, to be about at the age where it's time that you begin to pray by yourself. Some of you are getting on in, into the years where, where you can pray without the, the, the leadership of your mom and dad. Of course, you should still pray with your family and do that during family worship and during bed and all of that. But, but do you ever set aside time? It doesn't need to be a long time. But do you ever set aside time to, to be with God by yourself and to simply pray? I would encourage you, you parents to take responsibility, to teach your children this very thing. J.C. Ryle once said that if you train your children to anything, train them at least to a habit of prayer. So I, I should ask you parents, do you pray with your children? Are you encouraging the, the habit of prayer in them? And, and not only that, but do you set an example for them in prayer? Do, you, do, you ever, do they ever see you pray? Do you set aside time to be alone with God by yourself and to pray? Do you show that it's a priority for you as it was for Jesus here? And of course, it's not just for children or parents. It's for all, all of us. Again, J.C. Ryle. I assume correctly wrote that there's, there's no practice so neglected as private prayer. He said this, it's, it's one of those private transactions between God and our souls which no eye sees and therefore one which men are tempted to pass over and leave undone. I believe that thousands never utter a word of prayer at all. They eat, they drink, they sleep, they rise, they go forth in their labor, they return to their homes, they breathe God's air, they see God's sun, they walk on God's earth, they enjoy God's mercies, they have dying bodies. They have judgment and eternity before them. But they never speak to God. They have not one word to say to him in whose hand are life and breath and all things and from whose mouth they must one day receive their everlasting sentence. How dreadful this seems. But if the secrets of men were only known, how common. Do you set aside time to be alone with God and to pray? Jesus did. And we would do well to follow him. And it seems here that, that he did so late into the night. Remember the disciples are on a boat, they're out at sea. Jesus is, is on the land praying, but, but we find here that as they're making their way, they meet with trouble and hardship. And so Jesus, being our compassionate, caring shepherd, our Savior, he goes out to help and comfort them with his presence. Look at me next at the comfort of Jesus' person and presence. Pick it up there in verse 47. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Now, when it says that, that they were making headway painfully, Mark's language here is arresting. This word, essentially, it's the same word that means to be tormented. It's used to, uh, it's translated as torment in Mark 5, 7. 
The same word is translated in the same way to speak of the torment of hell in Revelation 20.10. All that to say, this isn't just like a minor struggle, like, you know, when you get turned around and you're trying to, to uh, con- push your, paddle your canoe up against the current of the river. These are winds and waves that are potentially threatening their lives. This is similar to what we saw in Mark 4.35-41. This is real danger here. Death is potentially knocking at their door, it seems. And so we should also note that all of this takes place in the middle of the night. He says that, it, 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 that he comes to them in the fourth watch of the night here, between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And often when you, when you come upon a scene at night in Scripture, it's, it's representing danger and darkness and, and difficulty. These, these are the kinds of situations wherein you face real hardship and suffering in life. These are dark times. When you get the the dreaded diagnosis, when the relationship is broken, when the loved one dies, when the fallenness of this world seems to be enveloping you and your soul, these are these kinds of moments. This represents those kinds of trials, the kind we all face. They're they're inevitable in life. Being a Christian is no guarantee that we will avoid life's difficulties. In fact, sometimes... They happen as a result of being a Christian. Remember that it was because of Jesus' command here that they were here in the first place. And yet in the midst of of their difficulty, Jesus sees them with his compassionate eyes, with his eyes of of care and compassion. His eyes of care and compassion, they never leave us, not even in the, the darkest and deepest struggles of our lives, boys and girls. Jesus always sees his beloved children with his compassionate and caring eyes. Sometimes I know that some of you struggle with being afraid when you go to sleep at night, when you lay down to go to bed. You're afraid of the dark and what might happen when you sleep. You want to know what King David said in Psalm 4, 8? He said... In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. Because you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Boys and girls, you can lay down your head at night and sleep without fear. Why? Because our Jesus never sleeps and he never slumbers and his eyes are on his beloved sheep. The eyes of our sovereign Savior are upon you as they are on all of God's beloved And so he sees his disciples here, and in the midst of their difficulty and darkness, he came to them, it says. In the midst of their struggle, their hardship, their fear, he saw them, and he had compassion on them, and he came to them, and he came to them, it says, walking on the sea. Well, that's amazing. Now, this is is clearly... A claim to a miracle. Mark's not saying that Jesus just so happened to find a sandbar that he could kind of travel out onto the ocean with, as some some have claimed. Peter told Mark, Mark's telling us, that Jesus miraculously walked onto the surface of the water. And that is a clear claim to and demonstration of Jesus' divinity. Jesus is God. You know, no matter how wonderful you think you are, You can't decide that you're just tired of gravity and go, I think I'm going to walk on water. 
Boys and girls, next time you take a bath or, or swim in a pool or whatever, try walking on water. See how that goes for you. It won't work. But you know who can walk on water? Look at Job 9.8. Job is extolling God. And listen to what he says about God. The only God, he says, He alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Who tramples? Who alone tramples the waves of the sea? Who walks on water? God and God alone. Jesus walks where only God walks. And part of what we need to see here is that he did this, not as, a, not as like a cool trick to merely amaze his disciples. Look at the next phrase. He meant to pass by them. Now, upon initial glance, when we first read that, you may have thought that that seems like Jesus meant to walk past them, hoping he wasn't noticed, hoping to kind of avoid the disciples. They're kind of annoying. So hopefully he just goes on and, and meets them on the other side. In fact, the exact opposite is meant. And literally, the sentence just before that says that he came to them walking on the sea. He came to them. Well, he wouldn't have come to them if he intended to not be seen by them. No, something else must be meant here. And it's not hard to figure out what it is, especially considering that this exact phrase is used to describe what the Lord did when he revealed himself in his glory to Moses in Exodus 34, 6. There, the Lord's revelation of himself is described in this way. Listen to this. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, the Lord passed before him. Mark is using this Old Testament language here for the revelation of Yahweh. Jesus passing by them doesn't mean that he didn't mean to be seen by them. It means that he meant to be truly seen by them. For who he truly is, God come to us in flesh with all of his glory and power and care to comfort his disciples in their distress. And of course, we just read the story. You know, the disciples weren't initially comforted and said they were terrified They just didn't have categories for someone walking on the sea in the middle of a windstorm. This is outrageous. They thought he was a ghost. Of course, they they ought to have known by now. They, They saw him still the storm already. They saw him cleanse lepers. They saw him raise the dead. They saw him multiply loaves. They should have known who Jesus is and what he's capable of and that he defies all of our previously conceived categories. And yet, they didn't see him for who he truly is and what he is. And so when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out. For They all saw him and were terrified. They still don't see him clearly. Our Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so he was patient with his disciples and not wanting them to be afraid. He said to them, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now Mark, if he hasn't been clear about who Jesus is yet, he really makes it clear here. Jesus not only walks where God walks, he talks like only God talks. When Jesus tells them to take heart and not be afraid, well, that's a, a, a phrase that Yahweh has repeated throughout the Scriptures. But what's more is he tells them that the basis for their fears being relieved is who he is. And who is he? 
Well, my translation says it is I. But part of what we should understand here is that the, the, the two Greek words translated as it is I is not the normal way someone should say it is I. So I'm breaking a preaching rule here. My, my preaching professor told me to never, they said that uh, the original languages are kind of like your underwear when you're preaching. You assume that you have them on, but no one wants to see. So I'm breaking that rule right now. Not with the underwear, with the... Uh, uh, we need to move on. Um, but one of the most important places, the, the, these two words going together and being mentioned together in this way is exceedingly rare. But one of the most important places that we find these two words put together in this way is in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in that Old Testament translation, when Yahweh reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3, and Moses asks God who he is and what his name is, God tells Moses, you know it, Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. I am who I am. But in the Septuagint, it says these two words. When Jesus tells his disciples to take heart and to not be afraid, and he wants to comfort them in the midst of their distress and hardship and torment, he says to them that the one who is present with them in the midst of this storm is none other than the I am of Exodus 3. In flesh. Jesus walks where only God walks, and he talks like only God talks here. He reveals himself to his disciples to comfort them and to give them courage in the midst of their distress with his presence and an affirmation of his divine identity. He passed by them to reveal himself for their comfort. And he reveals himself in this text for us for the very same purpose today. As Charles Spurgeon said of this very text, he says, Believer, Jesus says to you, I am. Is your wife dead? Is your child to be buried? Have your possessions failed? Is your health departing? Are your joys declining? Alas, it is a dying, fleeting world. But there is one who is always the same. For Jesus says to you, I am. This is the comfort of all comforts. This is the joy of all joys. There is peace that passes all understanding in the midst of all trouble and hardship for you. And it's found only in knowing Jesus, the I am who has come for us and who gives himself to us without reserve. Boys and girls, any adult in here can, can tell you that life is full of hardships and difficulties. Many of you already know this. You've, you've faced difficulties over the last couple of years that, that many of us never had to face at your age. Life is hard. It's filled with difficulty. And for all of us, we can easily make the mistake of thinking that what God's grace means in the midst of difficulty and suffering is relief and release. But part of what we see here is that grace often doesn't mean relief from suffering. Grace often means a deeper realization of who Christ is for us in the midst of suffering. And when that happens, we truly know what it is to have comfort and courage in the midst of whatever life throws at us, whatever hardship, whatever suffering. When we get a clear view of Christ, we take heart even in the midst of suffering. Because we see a sovereign Savior who is bigger and greater than anything life can throw at us. And if he is with us, we don't need to be afraid. 
But just as there's comfort, there's also caution for us to consider in this text as well. And we find it in verses 51 to 52 here. With me next at the caution of the disciples' response. You know, there are, there are obstacles that can get in the way of us receiving the comfort and courage that Jesus offers us. And we're warned about one of them here. Look at the last sentence. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Well, that's just strange, isn't it? And Mark just kind of leaves it hanging there. I have so many questions for him. But at least part of what we need to see here, friends, is that there's a difference between being amazed and having faith. There's a difference between being utterly astounded by Jesus and trusting Jesus. Now, Paul Tripp once said, amazement is a state of the mind. Faith is an investment of the heart. It seems here that the, the disciples had this state of mind. They were amazed. They were astounded. But we have reason to question their faith here. It says that they didn't, they didn't understand about the loaves. And friends, we, we've picked up on this as we've moved throughout Mark's gospel that the miracles of Jesus Christ recorded here are not just random displays of divine power. When Jesus heals the leper or raises the dead, or calms the storm, or multiplies the loaves. He's not just doing random stuff as the opportunity arises. These miracles are, just like the miracle in our text, are, they are intentional revelations of who he is and what he came to do. Jesus is not just taking these 12 into the, the, the school of discipleship with his teaching, but his very miracles themselves are part of his curriculum for them here. Boys and girls, you're, you're going to school. Some of you are homeschooled. You're learning letters and math and reading and equations and STEM and all of this wonderful information. Well, Jesus is taking these 12 through his school of discipleship, and the subject they're learning is him. And so the miracles and the, the situations in which they take place are carefully constructed lessons in Christ's school of discipleship as he reveals himself to his disciples. And the 12 just don't seem to be getting it. They didn't understand about the loaves. You know, they just saw it. They should have known that Christ's power is infinite and his care for them is evident based on this miracle. And so they shouldn't be so surprised about the, the walking on the water and the stilling of the wind, but, but they are. Because there's a difference between being astounded by Christ and trusting in Christ. Boys and girls, I, I want you to consider whether you're merely astounded by Jesus or if you truly trust in Him. Some of you are growing up in households where your parents are, are teaching you so well. They read the Bible, they pray with you, they talk with you about Jesus, they read good books that teach you about the Bible. And sometimes when we read stories like this, we are rightly amazed by Jesus. We hear about Him walking on water and we just go, wow, that's amazing. Sometimes I, I, when I read the scriptures and my study and, and, and preparation for sermons, sometimes I just go, wow, that is amazing. And that's right, we should be amazed by Jesus, but it's not enough to be amazed by Jesus. You need to trust in Jesus. This may be a, a rather pathetic illustration, but I remember I was in Brazil sometime late 2008, early 2009, and, and we were on a friend's farm in western Brazil, and, and we were 
uh, trying to get running water on his farm. He needed to raise money for it, and so he decided, he lived in a little village, he decided to put on a rodeo for the village, as they often, they do that kind of thing just randomly in western Brazil, I guess. And so we helped him with it, and we, we put up a fence, uh, you know, to keep the animals in, we uh, slayed a, a, a pig and made soup with it, and and he brought out all of his animals and all of his stuff, and there were bulls to ride and horses to ride and steers to rope and all of this. And they asked me if I wanted to be in the rodeo, if I wanted to ride a bull. And I knew in that moment that this was going to be my only chance in life to get into the rodeo and to become a big rodeo star and all of that. But I looked at that bull, and you know, now that I think about it, it's probably really exaggerated, but in my mind, that thing was like the Arnold Schwarzenegger of bulls. Like it had the huge bulging shoulders and neck with veins popping out. It was on steroids. and all. I don't know. It probably was just a little pathetic bull though. And I was just amazed by that thing. But I didn't trust it for a second and I was not going to get on that bull. Boys and girls, you can look at Jesus similar to how I looked at that bull and never invest your heart in him. You can look at Jesus in passages like we have this morning and be amazed by him and be impressed by him and think that he's just amazing. All the while not knowing the comfort of his person and presence in your own life. Take time to consider this. Pray about this. Talk with your mom and dad about this. Just be sure that you're not amazed by Jesus while failing to trust in Jesus. And that's not just an admonition to children. This is an admonition to us all. You know, Mark is, Mark is messing with our categories here, isn't he? Because the only people we've seen as being described as having hard hearts so far in Mark's gospel has been the scribes. And that's no surprise to us, but here Mark says that the disciples, the the 12, those in his innermost circle, their hearts were hardened. That's frightening for me. That's for good reason then that that the author of Hebrews warns believers. He calls them brothers. He calls them in, in Hebrews 3, 12 to 13, and he tells his brothers to take care to ensure that their hearts are not hardened in unbelieving. And this is something for all of us to consider. Because listen, it is entirely possible for us to be amazed by what we discover about Jesus in our study of theology. I know some of you just love theology. You love to get a good systematic theology and sit down and you just read it and you're amazed by what you read. But it's entirely possible to be amazed by what you read there. It's entirely possible to to be amazed by the literary genius and beauty of the Bible. Some of you are are working through the the biblical theology seminars and Nancy Guthrie and talking about all this. That's so wonderful. The Bible is an amazing book. We should be amazed by it. Some of us, it's entirely possible to read stories about Jesus and to be astounded by his wisdom and power and character and mercy it's, it's possible to be amazed by Jesus. But to have a hard heart and not trust in Jesus. Do you trust in Jesus this morning? Do you understand who he is? Not just about the loaves, that's one thing, but, but what the loaves ultimately point to in him and, and what he's come to do. Do you understand that Jesus is God come to us in human flesh? 
that he's lived the perfect life that you and I ought to have lived. But that as perfect humanity, he has also been tormented on a cross for us and died the sinner's death that we deserve to die. And that he did so in our place, taking the just penalty that we deserve because of our sin so that we can receive his just reward from God our Father. And do you understand that he rose again on the third day to demonstrate for once and for all that he is the great I am whose power knows no limits and whose authority knows no bounds. And do you understand that he has come and done all of this so that he might give us himself to be our comfort, our joy, our courage in the midst of this terribly difficult life until we reach glory. Do you know that because of who he is for us, we can have comfort and courage in the face of whatever life throws at us, be it burning at the stake or struggling across a lake, be it sick or dying or losing loved ones or possessions or what have you, do you trust this Jesus? He is enough for you, my friends, because he is the great I am. Take heart. Do not be afraid. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your love and grace and forgiveness. We give you thanks for sending Jesus and perfectly revealing yourself to us in him. We thank you that he has been revealed to us in Mark's gospel here as our Savior and our Sovereign. We pray that as we have beheld him here, that our response would be amazement, that we would be utterly astounded by him, but more that we would trust him and receive the comfort and courage that he alone can give in this life. We pray that as we break the bread and drink the cup now, that we would have eyes to see Jesus for who he is, that we would celebrate and be comforted by what he has done. Confirm these truths in our hearts as we receive the supper this morning. In Jesus' name.